Well, um, good afternoon, ladies. I am so happy and thankful to be back with you all gathered here to study God's Word. It's been a little while, I think we said two months, but it felt like a lot longer since we last met, so I wanted to look back to the first half of Ephesians before we get started. Remember, this is a letter from Paul to the church of Ephesus and was also probably a circular letter that other churches received as well. Ephesus was a major important city in Western Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, with lots of trade and different cultures there. Paul may have written this around the time he wrote Colossians while he was imprisoned in Rome. The letter opened up with a progression of statements about God's blessings. We learn that the praiseworthy God, who has perfectly blessed his people in Christ, has been lavishing grace on them since eternity past. And the sacrificial death of Jesus restores sinners now, and indeed will restore all of creation in the end back into perfect union in Christ. We also learn that our praiseworthy God chose us to be his possession and his son, and called us to himself through the hearing of the gospel. At the end of Ephesians chapter 1, we saw that prayer is an essential part of transforming our minds through the Holy Spirit and God's power, which is available to us when we are in Christ, which also applies to what we will look at today. Furthermore, in chapter 2, we read about our merciful and loving God who has taken his people out of their spiritual deadness in order to display his glorious grace and kindness to them in Christ. Through Christ's blood, God delivered us from division to unity and peace and brought us as a new community near as his dwelling place. Then our final study last session, we went over the beginning of chapter 3 and saw God's plan for recon uh, of reconciling his people as a complete union with each other and with Christ, which brings us to deliverance but not without suffering. It also brings us blessings, including confident, bold access to God. The end of chapter 3 that we're discussing today is our final piece in the doctrinal half of the book. Chapter 4 starts the practical part of Ephesians, so here we really see the climax of all we have been studying. There are many connections with the former prayer and the doxology we studied in chapter 1, like a focus on love and familial terms, such as in chapter 1, verse 4 to 5, where in love he predestined us for adoption. And glory, such as in chapter 1, verse 6, 12, and 14, where we praised his glorious grace. And the spirit, such as in chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, where we saw we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of our inheritance. Prominence is also given to words for power, knowledge, the interior life, and fullness. So last time we met, I opened with mention of the election and the divide it had caused between money. Really, all of 2020 deepened the divide that was already in place here in the United States. The gap between Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal, just seems to always grow wider and wider as each side gets more extreme in their beliefs. There also seem to be lots of other divides popping up over the last year. Um, people fighting about wearing or not wearing masks, rioters and the police, racial divides, cultural divides, and more. Everywhere you go, it seems to be unavoidable to hear and see debates, arguments, anger, and hate being spewed at each other on social media, TV, radio, and in person. I didn't watch the inauguration, but I heard about it and read the transcript and saw some pieces online. What was most striking was President Biden's call for unity. This unity that he called for, the idea to unite our nation, unite our people, 
is a false unity and a false hope in this broken world. There is only one perfect man who is able to unite all things in him. In Jesus, we share one body. We are one family, one faith with one spirit, one Lord, and one Father. For the church fellowship in which the Gentiles and the Jews, believers, uh, the, excuse me, the Gentiles and the Jewish believers were united was not an enrollment or a call to stop the divide between them, but they were truly united with Christ by faith. And their union with each other as fellow members of his body was sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are confident that this unity is found in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So let us seek after the truth of God. Let us live near to Christ, for this is the best and the only way to promote unity. The theme of this section is pray for God's family to be strengthened by God's Spirit, to know Christ's presence and love, to love one another in unity, and to give God the glory. You can see from the outlines on your tables that this is split into two main portions, the family prayer for the Ephesians to mature in their faith, and the doxology of God who is able to answer those prayers. As we start this section in verse 14, we see the term again, for this reason. Resuming his train of thought he broke off of in the beginning of chapter 3, when we saw Paul starting to pray but being distracted by his own explanation of himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Here Paul picks the thought back up and continues on toward his prayer. This reason Paul mentions is looking back to all of chapter 2, which prompted Paul's prayer. There he established the theme of God's amazing grace which brings to life those who were dead in sins and reconciled believing Gentiles and Jews, both to God and to each other, creating in the process a new entity, the church. We then see the posture of Paul's prayer, also in verse 14, when he states, I bend my knees before the Father. The normal posture for prayer among the Jews was standing. Kneeling was unusual and indicated an exceptional degree of earnestness, as when Ezra confessed Israel's sins, in Ezra chapter 9, verse 5, and the verses that follow. In addition to showing humility and readiness to obey, it can also show heightened feeling and intent, which certainly fits with the wording of Paul's prayer here. Scripture lays down no rules about the posture of prayer we should adopt. It is possible to pray kneeling or standing, laying down while driving or brushing your teeth, with your hands folded or raised to the heavens. But most important to remember is your heart's posture. Our hearts should always be humbled when we approach God. This reverence Paul is showing takes place on the context of acceptance and family. So his appeal is to the Father. Paul has literally spent the better part of two chapters justifying this kind of approach to God, such as in chapter 3, verse 12, which states, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. In chapter 2, Paul declared that Jews and Gentiles are fellow members of the Father's family who enjoy equal access to their Father in prayer. Here Paul goes on to affirm that from this Father, before whom he kneels in reverent humility, every family on heaven and on earth is named. Here the broader sense of God being the Father of all humanity is used. The, the emphasis in Ephesians on a cosmic Christ and a cosmic role for the church is based in the understanding of God as a cosmic father. The anticipation that all things will be brought together in Christ, such as mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10, 
at the fullness of time presupposes that God is the father of all. Paul saw the, the divisions among the human race as existing under the one God. The implication for the unity the letter seeks here is obvious. This also makes us think of the promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. The fatherhood of God is the basis that establishes our responsibility to other people. We live in a broken world full of suffering, poverty, disease, and pain. We cannot fix the problems of this world, and providing help to people isn't usually easy. But the fatherhood of God requires us to care, to get involved, to speak out, to take action and help. Furthermore, the fatherhood of God doesn't allow us to draw an invisible circle around Christians as the limitations of our responsibility. We enjoy a unity with all people. In that vein, the issue of racism must also be addressed. Two big fatal blows exist in Ephesians to racism. Christ's death, which destroys hostility and creates oneness, and the fact that God is father of us all. Racism is an enemy against which the church must speak and act. Not only is racism an attack on people, but it is an attack on God. For the people being disparaged are his people, people he created and who he loves. Paul's prayer for the whole family of God shows us not only who we should pray for and why we should pray, but gives us an outline of what to pray for. Commentator John Stott compares it to a prayer staircase consisting of four steps along the way. Strength, love, knowledge, and fullness. I love this picture as the basic ideas that the stairs build to the climax of the prayer and build on each other. The first stair we approach is to be strengthened by spirit in the inner person. Paul prays in verse 16 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The power comes from the spirit working inside the person. This is an allusion back to chapter 1, verse 18. When we saw Paul praying to have the eyes of your heart enlightened, to know what is the hope to which he has called, what is the hope to which he has called you, excuse me, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul seems to love mentioning riches in this letter. And here both riches and glory are combined, just like in chapter 1, verse 18. Some more examples we saw were chapter 1, verse 7, the riches of his grace. Chapter 2, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is the riches of God that gives us this rich enablement and strengthens us to live in this world. What a deep reservoir to draw from. With this kind of access, there is no need to get discouraged. Such as riches was noted in the earlier prayer, so was power in chapter 1, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This strengthening will be mentioned again in verse 18 and is a core idea. The indication here is about God giving enablement that otherwise would not exist. The means of this enablement is the Spirit. We know that they already possess the Spirit who sealed their salvation, so the request here is about drawing on what God has already provided. Paul has no doubt that God has inexhaustible resources, 
resources at his disposal or that out of them he will be able to answer his prayer. What about the place for the strengthening in your inner being? One commentator noted Paul uses inner being like this one other time in Romans chapter 7 verse 22 where it seems to be equivalent to the mind. This concerns the moral nature, reason, mind, and will. Paul prays that the spirit will be so strong and influence working in people that their lives will show it. We need strength during times of suffering. If we are to show God's wisdom in such times, it must be by God's strength. We need strength in times of temptation. We need strength to resist it and be victorious to the glory of God. We need strength in times of witnessing. We need strength to speak the truth regardless of what the world may think of us. When Jesus prayed for God to send the Comforter or Holy Spirit to be with his disciples, it was this he primarily had in mind. The Greek, the Greek word can be translated as comforter, counselor, or one called alongside to help. The Holy Spirit helps us do the right thing in difficult circumstances. Christian sisters, we need to reflect on this and take a minute and assess where our inner self is at. Rather than merely pursuing physical needs and desires, we must attend to our interior lives. Our inner being requires as much care and exercise as our physical bodies. <coughs> Excuse me. As we climb up the staircase, we are on the step containing so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays for Jesus to live in these believers. Even as Jesus promised in John chapter 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. At first glance, this seems like a redundant and unnecessary statement for what makes believers believers is that they have Christ within them. If he is not a part of them through faith, they are not Christian. But of course, Paul means more than this. It is true that all who are truly Christians are indwelt by Jesus Christ. But it is also true that this is something we mature in as Christ takes stronger and fuller possession of every nook and cranny of our lives. The clue to Paul's meaning here is the word choice. Two ancient Greek words convey the idea to live in or dwell. One has the idea of living in the place as a stranger and the other has the meaning of more of a familial settling down in a place and making a permanent residence there. As Stott points out, it is used for the fullness of the Godhead abiding in Christ and as here for Christ abiding in a believer's heart and life. The prayer, <clears throat> excuse me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> The prayer is that Christ might settle down in our hearts and control them as the rightful owner. So how can this happen? Paul expresses how in very definite terms, through faith. This Christ-centered inner directness requires a trust in God, not following our own inclinations. Paul summarized this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Inner spiritual strength comes from a personal submission to the transforming work of God's spirit. This is the fourth time in this letter one is struck by the natural Trinitarian structure of the apostles' thoughts. 
In chapter 2, verse 20 to 22, the church was called a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This lofty description of the church is now paralleled by an equally lofty description of the individual believer who has experienced salvation and transformation. By the Spirit's work, Christ takes up residence in the person. Paul prays here that Christ will infuse one's whole being, and it won't be the last time we see this idea in Ephesians. Commentator Snodgrass notes, We know Paul preferred to speak of our being in Christ rather than of Christ being in us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 is one of only five Pauline texts that speak of Christ being in us. Galatians 4.19 is closest to this one, which states, Like a woman in childbirth, Paul endured labor pains until Christ was formed in them. The imagery of this text challenges our idea of faith. Instead of a little Jesus tucked away in our souls or in our hearts, it is replaced by the presence of one who gives shape and strength at the core of our being. Someone who takes up residence and redefines us. If we are permeated with Christ, such appreciated ideas such as independence, self-determination, or self-fulfillment must be abandoned, at least as they are understood in our society. Christ's indwelling means we are not our own. Christians are to live as if they know who owns the house. We are independent of everything but Christ. On him, we are totally dependent. Our uniqueness was determined by him, and we seek only to fulfill God's will. This denial of self is actually a finding of one's true self in relation to God, for that is the purpose of creation. True freedom and self-actualization are found in life with Christ. As we climb higher, the second part of verse 17 states that you being rooted and grounded in love. This part is very similar to chapter 2, verse 20 to 22, and to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. In the Colossians verses, Paul instructs Christians to live in Christ, being rooted in him, built on him, and strengthened in faith. Here in chapter 3, verse 17, he prays that the readers will be strengthened with Christ, who indwells them through faith, and that by being rooted and established in love, they will come to know love. If we could ask Paul what purpose he prayed that Christ would control and strengthen his readers, I think he would reply that he wanted them to be strengthened to love. In the new and reconciled humanity, which Christ is creating, love is the prominent feature. The new humanity is God's family, whose members are brothers and sisters, who love their father and love each other, or at least they should. They need the power of the Spirit's might and of Christ's indwelling to enable them to love each other, especially across the deep racial and cultural divide which previously separated them, the Jews and the Gentiles. The mixing of botanical and architectural images is not unusual, and here it works beautifully. These Christians are to have deep roots and a firm foundation, both terms emphasizing depth as opposed to superficiality. Paul first likens them to a well-rooted tree and then to a well-built house. In both cases, the unseen cause of their stability will be the same, love. These metaphors may not be perfect English usage, but it is good theology. In the first case, love is pictured as something that nourishes us, which it obviously does. And in the second case, it is pictured as a solid foundation, which it is. 
Love is to be the soil in which their life is to be built. Love is both the source and the goal. When Christ fills people, they know they are rooted in his love. From the experience of love, they know love and are transformed. According to commentator Snodgrass, of the five words summarizing the Christian faith, faith and love are explicit here. Grace is implied in verse 16 and truth and hope in verse 19. Love plays a central role in describing the believer's experience with Christ. Just as love is both the source and the goal, Christ is the goal as well in verse 17 and the source of the power of God at work in us in verse 19, which we will get to in a little bit. Our last step before we reach the top of the staircase is to comprehend the love of Christ. But not only that, Paul prays, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul switches from our love in which we are rooted and grounded to Christ's love, which he prays we may comprehend. And he states that we need power and strength for both. Strength to love and power to comprehend Christ's love. First, Paul's concern for unity appears here again when he mentions all the saints in verse 18. While the text is about individuals knowing, it is not about individualistic knowing. In every facet, Christianity is a corporate religion. And only as people comprehend together can they experience what God has for them. Paul asked that they may be able to understand together as a community the dimensions of Jesus' love because Paul wanted them to know it by experience, not just in words. It is partly by loving that we earn the meaning of his love. Next, let's examine that Paul is praying we may comprehend the full dimensions of Christ's love, its breadth and length and height and depth. Modern commentators warn us to not take this too literally since the apostle may have been indulging in a poetic hyperbole, excuse me. If we know anything about Paul's writing in Ephesians, though, it's certainly that he embellishes on the descriptive words and loves to layer them. But let's not just rush over, over this as beautiful language of Paul's writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. It seems to me legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to cover all people, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of the last couple chapters. And I'll take it even further to say that Jesus' love has the width to cover all people and all of their sins. Such as John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus' love is long enough to last forever. Jeremiah 31.3 tells us, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jesus' love has depth. It is deep enough to reach even the most wicked sinner. And is there any deeper it could go than the death Jesus endured on the cross for us? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8 tells us, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> 
Last, but certainly not least, Jesus' love has height. Jesus' love exalts us, cursed sinners, to heaven with him. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 to 6, we read, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 37 to 39 states, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. According to John Stott, ancient commentators took it even further and saw these dimensions illustrated on the cross. For its upright pole reached down into the earth and pointed up to heaven, while its crossbar carried the arms of Jesus stretched out as if to invite and welcome the whole world. The picture of the cross is the most meaningful one to show us the love of Christ. The cross pointed in four ways, essentially in every direction, because Jesus' love is wide enough to include every person, long enough to last through all eternity, deep enough to reach the worst sinner, and high enough to take us to heaven. At the end of this verse, we see to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul wrote of something we can know. This isn't speculation, guesswork, emotions, or feelings. This is something to comprehend. Spurgeon states, one of these philosophers kindly says that religion is a matter of belief, not of knowledge. This is clean in opposition to all the teaching of scripture. Yet even though we may comprehend its dimensions to some extent with our minds and know this love truly, we cannot fully exhaust the love of Christ in our knowledge. It is too broad, long, deep, and high even for all of the saints together to grasp. It surpasses knowledge. Paul has already used this phrase when speaking about God's power in chapter 1, verse 19, and grace in chapter 2, verse 7. Now he uses it of his love. Christ's love is unknowable as his riches are unsearchable. Commentator John Stott states it beautifully. Doubtless we shall spend eternity exploring his inexhaustible riches of grace and love. We are to grow in our awareness of that love particularly through the routine hardships, sufferings, and persecutions of life. This will expand our knowledge in all dimensions. To know Jesus' love in the full biblical sense of the word, the answer is through experience. Paul wanted them to experience the love of Christ, which in its fullest extent surpasses human knowledge. This language used is for someone who has been surprised and overwhelmed with Christ's love. To know Christ's love is to be transformed by love and expand it into the fullness of God. Which brings us to the top of the staircase, the ultimate goal of this prayer, that you may be filled to all the fullness of God. The expression all the fullness occurs elsewhere only in Colossians chapter 1.19 and 2.9, both indicating that all that God is dwells in Christ. We saw in connection with chapter 123 that the fullness of God refers to the way God makes his presence and power felt. Because of the preposition used here, which means unto, 
The meaning is the fullness would be God's own fullness, that which fills himself. Overwhelming is definitely the case, but Paul is praying that we and all Christians will be filled up to or unto all the fullness that is God, that is in God himself. When God expresses himself through the life and actions of individuals and the community, his glory is on display. The prayer is that they all might be filled. So the request is not for the individual, but about what the community as a whole is called to become. God's presence and character have been revealed, and spiritual maturity is to be the result. Commentator Clark states, among all the great sayings in this prayer, this is the greatest. To be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. To but, but to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the senses and confounds the understanding. So here we are standing on the highest step on this tall, high, overwhelming staircase, and we are to be filled with all God's fullness, an infinite thing. But then we have all eternity to, so, to be filled. I think Paul is praying that we will be filled and filled and filled and filled and so on forever. As God, out of his infinite resources, increasingly pours himself out into those sinful but now redeemed creatures, he has rescued through the work of Christ himself. That is what Paul's goal is in this prayer and in many ways in this letter, that God's love and wisdom and strength might so permeate them that they become mature as a people. Among the ways this will be seen is in their reconciliation and unity, such as we talked about in chapter 2, and in their living in ways distinct from the world, which we will see in the following chapters. We then move to the second section in verses 20 to 21, the doxology. A doxology is a short hymn of praises to God. In this case, that God is able to answer these prayers. Here we start with, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. As Paul climbed us to a great height at the top of the staircase, what can there be higher than the fullness of God? It is logical to ask, how can this ever be? How can something so far above us ever become a reality? It can only happen because God is able to do far beyond what we ask or even think. This doxology doesn't just belong to the prayer that precedes it, but also to every glorious privilege and blessing spoken of in the first three chapters. Who is able to bring such things to pass, such as in chapter 1, verse 3, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And in verse 4, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In chapter 2, verse 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And in this chapter, in verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And the list goes on and on. Only God can do this because he can do far beyond our ability to think or ask. Paul says that God is able to do above all that we ask or think. The we included Paul and the other apostles, and they certainly knew that Jesus could do great things. 
You can ask for every good thing you have ever experienced. God can do above that. You can think of, you can ask for every good thing that you can think of or imagine beyond your experience. God can do above that. You can imagine good things that are beyond your ability to name. God can do above that. Next, it states, this is possible according to the power that works within us. God is able to do this in our life now, not beginning with heaven. This power works in us now. The honor goes to God whose power is present in us and is working through us. The point is made with the use of three words that point to power or enablement. According to commentator Bach, the words translated are able, power, and working. This looks back to chapter 1, 19 through 20, and in chapter 3, um, 7 and 8, 16 through 19. The power and working are from God for us. In fact, that power is at work in ways we cannot even conceive of as taking place. In giving such praise, Paul is also reminding his audience that God can deliver on the hope being expressed here. In fact, he can do so in ways beyond what we think about or plan to do. These things that Paul prayed for in the previous verses, spiritual strength, the indwelling Jesus, being rooted and grounded in love, practical knowledge of Jesus' love, and the fullness of God belong to us as children of God. However, they must be received by believing prayer and can be furthered in the lives of others in the church by our prayers for them. We need to make huge, bold prayers for the church, and God is able to answer them far more abundantly than we ask or think or imagine. Paul is not only thinking of earthly blessings here. He is going beyond these to think of the blessings of God's inexhaustible kindness toward us through Christ in eternity. Since eternity is immeasurable, so also are the works that God will do for us in the life to come. In this sense, the doxology is ending right where the prayer did just a verse before, with reference to our being filled forever to the measure of all the fullness of God, which is immeasurable. This doxology then ends the first half of Ephesians, where it started in chapter 1, verse 3, in giving praise to God. Verse 21 states, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This doxology is striking in the proclamation that glory is given to God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. No other passage mentions the church explicitly in a, dox in a doxology. To suggest that the church and Christ Jesus are afforded equal status is presumptuous. This is more than a wish, though. It is a declaration that glory is now and forever in Christ and in the church. The term glory refers in non-technical context to something with splendor or something that is radiant. So it is greatness or honor to be made clear that is the point of the word, a visible prestige. This takes place when God is honored and when his fullness is present among his people in the church. Showing God's glory is the result of people responding to God. It comes from God's glory and the response results in it. But that response is rooted in reflecting the fullness of God's plan, 
character, and presence. This is about more than love, glory, or wisdom, but includes all of it. This is one idea of why Apostle, or Apostle Paul names the church before Christ. As when this happens, when the church truly reflects the fullness of all of God, then they are on the same status as Christ. I also really like the idea of how Spurgeon put it as well. But the apostle felt that he must not say, unto him be the glory in my soul. He wished that, but his one soul afforded far too little space. And so he cried, unto him be the glory in the church. He calls upon all the people of God to praise the divine name. The duration of this praise is also unending or forever. The closing expression of amen means so it be or let it be so. It represents a pronounced affirmation of what has just been said. We use the word so often today that it has lost some of its emphasis. God's power is available to help us love as we should and even beyond that in ways we cannot imagine. The church is to believe so deeply in God that it lives in a way that honors God, empowered by him to love well with the strength and power that enables us to live distinctly from the world, with humility that shows dependence on God. John Stott says the power comes from him, the glory must go to him. He is glorified when we reflect him. Does unity in the church bring God glory? This brings us back to where we started with talk of unity, and as Charles Spurgeon stated, division in churches never begin with those full of love to the Savior. That love was central in this prayer is no mistake. To experience Christ is to encounter his love and to be put on a path of understanding love. Now we see how the hostility mentioned in chapter 2, 14 through 16, was killed. The love of Christ destroyed both the hostility between humanity and God and that between various groups of human beings. And the love of Christ is shorthand for the love of God experienced in Christ. This is the hope we need now in the time we are living. Not a false idea of unity, but the true unity that only Christ can provide with love as both the source and goal as the central part of our lives. This prayer is as appropriate to pray now as it was 2,000 years ago. Its theological ideas are truthfully relevant for our lives. The most difficult part of this practice takes place on an emotional level. Paul's emotions soar and lead him to spiritual heights in worship. How can these emotions be emulated so that we feel the same impact for our own worship or for our own prayers? Emotions come out of deep convictions and personal involvement. Unless the theology, unless the theology, sorry, unless the theology takes deep root in our souls, the emotions cannot be authentically reproduced. We must also pray and praise like Paul. We must take the time to work on our inner person by reading scripture and studying theology. A theology with any conviction should drive us to prayer and worship. Theology isn't just for grand ideas and academics. It's for expressing our relationship with God. Prayer is contemplation, excuse me, I'm sorry, contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. And this is what Paul does. The highest point of view is the realization of what God has done in Christ for us. In anticipation of the day when every knee will bow to him, we do it now.